Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. Each week, we invite you to listen to messages of strength and hope given by our clergy on Shabbat or Jewish holidays. You can also listen to audio recordings of other programs and lectures given at Central by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to watch our live stream services or learn more about our congregation, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. And raise me up to a world living, oh, safe from the storm, in the shelter of your shalom. Let me tell you a story. There once was a mother named Sarah who had one beloved son. One morning she awoke to find that her son had gone missing along with his father. For three days she waited for word, not knowing what had become of him. And then, one night, she had a vision. Her son appeared before her. He said, my father led me over mountains and through valleys until we finally reached the top of a mountain. And there he erected an altar and collected firewood and bound me to the altar and raised the knife. And if God had not stopped his hand, I would have died. Upon hearing these words, Sarah let out a wail and then, heartbroken, she died. It is said that we can still hear her cry in the sound of the shofar. This week's Torah portion is called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, but it actually begins with her death. In the Torah text itself, we never learn how Sarah took in Isaac's near-death experience. But because the recounting of her death follows directly after the binding of Isaac, our sages suggest that the two events are connected. By filling in Sarah's story, our ancient rabbis allowed us to hear a voice that would otherwise have been silenced, the voice of a mother for whom even the near loss of her son was too much to bear. Let me tell you another story. One day, a mother named Tamara called her son Brandon, wondering where he was. For two days, she waited and then learned that he had been taken and led across the river to an island. If he had had enough money, he could have left, but he didn't, and so he stayed. It was dangerous there, he said. And then on the sixth day, Tamara received a message from an acquaintance on Facebook and learned that her son was dead. She called out, trying to learn what had happened, asking over and over, listen, I was told my son passed away. All I want to know is, is he still there? Her cries went unanswered. First and foremost, I want to know how my son passed away, where he was, she says. It's not going to bring him back, but I want to know. And finally, there is another mother. We don't know her name. She works on that same island where Brandon died, and she has a son too. And every day she goes to work for eight hours or maybe 16 or maybe 24. She's never quite sure. 
afraid that she may not return to her son who needs her. She can't carry a phone at work, and so there is no way for her son to reach her if something goes wrong. She holds her breath all day, hoping both of them survive. This island is real, and it's not very far from here. It's about half an hour away, just over in Queens, and yet it's mostly forgotten. Although 13 sons have died there in the past year, most of us close our ears to their cries and those of the mothers who wait in vain for them to come home. This island, Rikers Island, is built mostly on landfill. And it is now where we discard people, keeping them out of sight and out of mind so that we can go about our lives. Rabbi Haber and I traveled to Rikers Island this week with our faith partners from Trinity Church Wall Street and Episcopal Charities and our partner John Duxworth from EMI New York. We went to hear the stories of the people who live and work there. Rikers is currently housing 6,000 of our neighbors. Nearly half suffer from mental illness. At least 1,000 are seriously mentally ill and in crisis. Rikers was designed to be a short-term holding facility for people awaiting trial. It's not equipped as a long-term prison nor as a mental health facility, and yet more and more mentally ill people are sent there. And because of COVID, court dates are few and far between, so the numbers keep growing. Hundreds have been there for more than a year. When we visited, we found buildings that were literally falling apart. We walked over crumbling floors that were stripped of their linoleum and learned that a major source of the makeshift weapons that are commonplace on the island is the broken pieces of the buildings themselves. We spoke both with the men who were being held there and those who guard them. And what was striking was the unanimity of the message we heard. From detainees in the mental observation units to the official who is second in charge of the island, everyone agrees that the island is caught in an irredeemable, vicious cycle. Due in part to COVID, there are not enough officers to provide safety or basic services like escorting men to the doctor or allowing them access to the yard. This has led to a spike in violence against both detainees and officers, and this in turn has led more officers to refuse to come to work. There are areas where the doors don't lock properly and where officers have stopped searching for weapons. The officers we spoke to insisted, we need to get these men off the island. They don't belong here. They need to be in community receiving mental health services. This is not the place for people to be held for this long. And as for the officers themselves, like the mother whose story I told, they say, we never know how long we'll be working, which makes it impossible to care for our families. We're exhausted. And the men detained there will tell you, we know there aren't enough officers. We know they can't do our, their jobs but we can't get medical care or access to showers or visits with our families or hot water to cook our food. We can't get in front of the court to plead our case 
and without officers to keep order, the violence is out of control. We are desperate. I asked one corrections official what I should say tonight. And he said, this island needs love. We need you to remind people that we are here. The men who are here are forgotten. The staff is forgotten. This is a place where everyone is hurting. We need to get everyone who lives and works here the care they need so they can heal. He called on the faith community to shine light and love on an island that has little of either. In the Talmud, we read, when the community is immersed in suffering, no one should say, I will go home and I will eat, drink, and be at peace with myself. Our community is immersed in suffering. We can hear the shofar blast of their cries echoing across the city if only we open our ears and hearts. Our tradition teaches us that we should care for the sick, whether they are Jewish or not, for the sake of bringing peace to the world. It teaches us not to stand idly by the blood of our neighbors. It teaches that we are all made in God's image. Having seen what we've seen, to turn our backs and say we will go home and eat and drink and be at peace would be a desecration of God's name. In the days and weeks and years to come, may we as a community have the courage to not turn away. May we have the strength to work towards a day when those whose lives have been put in our hands are treated with care and dignity. And when mothers will no longer wonder whether they will ever again hear the voices of their sons. Shabbat Shalom. And I'd always praise your name. Thank you for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. Shalom.